0: All right, well, we need, in terms of announcements, we need to continue to pray for Jeff and his team down in Brazil. Uh, tonight's their last night. Are the speakers on? I heard them go on and off and on and off. Are they on? Speakers on? That came on. That's a speaker. I can hear that now. Okay. Pray for Jeff and his team down there. They're wrapping up uh Tomorrow. Today's the 20th, right? Yep, they're wrapping up tomorrow. Uh, also, Thursday night it's going to be cold. There's not supposed to be any liquid precipitation or frozen precipitation on Thursday night. So, you know, I've been to Kiev when it's and and been out teaching when it's zero. So I don't want to hear anybody complaining, and I want everybody here. Okay, got it? No whining unless, of course, there's going to be unexpected frozen precipitation. Uh, the registration for Chafer Seminary begins in two weeks, and um, West Houston Bible Church members can take two, up to two courses tuition-free, and then we'll have our annual congregation in February. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get into the word this evening, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, which means that if necessary, we need to confess sin and make sure that we are walking by the Spirit in close fellowship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your faithfulness to us. And Father, we just can't even fathom the depth of your grace. It is with without boundaries. And Father, we pray tonight for some of the pastors that are friends of this congregation and who are dealing with illnesses. And Father, we especially pray for Charlie Clough and his wife, Carol, and um uh he he has pneumonia, and just pray that the doctors in the hospital will be able to uh help him, and that he won't have any other infections develop, and that you'll just take care of him and Carol will be able to recover and Father, we pray too for for Herman Maddox and his wife Judith and um the whatever was going on today, and it's very difficult to ascertain, but it's you know father we just put him in your hands and father there are others like dan ingram and several others that we know that are dealing with serious serious illnesses and we just pray for them and pray for their faithfulness their testimony their witness to your grace even in the midst of uh that which will probably be, bring about their um their their transportation to heaven Father, we pray, too, for their churches as they deal with losing pastors, and we pray for them. We pray for Charlie's church up there, even though he's not the pastor, they're looking for a pastor, and so, Father, we pray for for them. Father, we just thank you that we can look at your word and be encouraged by it, even though we're seeing a very discouraging time, one that just truly does mirror what we're going through in our own nation, and that strikes pretty close to home. So, Father, we pray that you, we might be encouraged because you're faithful even in the midst of all of this rebellion and negative volition, just as we see around us, and that we might not be discouraged. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 13, Judges chapter 13, and we're looking at the birth of Samson, actually just the announcement of the birth of Samson. And so we're starting the Samson cycle. We have seen uh, five of the cycles of the judges, starting with Othniel and then Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and now Samson. He's the sixth of the six major judges in this book. And there are uh, four chapters and 96 verses dedicated to him so it's a lengthy section and there's a lot of detail and as you look at this detail we ought to pay attention to a couple of things first of all as we look at this samson does not deliver the nation from the philistines the philistines are the oppressor the people don't cry out uh, Samson is uh, extremely disobedient he doesn't seem to be interested in spiritual things at all and yet he um, let me get this other projector on if it'll work. Yet he, uh, at the end, he's going to trust God when he has been made a prisoner in the uh, temple of Dagon, and he brings the house down literally on top of the Philistines and defeats them at that point. It's not a; it doesn't reverse the oppression because when we go on to the, the story continuing, as we'll see tonight, and you get into the last judge uh, in this period, who is Sam Samuel, who is in. It was born at the beginning of the book of Samuel. You're still in the same period of time, and they're still under the oppression of the Philistines. So we see that there's just, they haven't learned their lesson. Now, I'm not going to point out and name names, but there's a lot of us who really don't learn our lessons, and we go through these same cycles over and over again in our own spiritual growth. And God still takes care of us and provides for us. Some of us are, we're not on a downward slide like this, but we may be going upward, but we're still dealing, because we all have a sin nature. That's just the way it is. So we come to the opening verse of this chapter, and we read again, again and again and again and again and again. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Literally, the word delivered is the word forgiving. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And um, as we look at this passage There are several things that we're going to have to deal with just as background to understand what's going on in chapters 13 through 16. One question we have to address almost right off the bat out of this verse is, who are the Philistines? What's their background in the scriptures? What's their background in Judges? Where did they come from? What do we know about them historically? Then we're going to see that the family to whom Samson is given and to whom Samson comes is the family of a man named Zorah. Um, excuse me, he's from the family of Zorah, whose name is Manoah, and his wife is barren. We never learn his wife's name, and she's barren, so we have to look at what is. why does the Bible make a point out of looking at several barren women in Scripture, what's going on there? And then we're going to discover that he is a na- going, to be, going to be a Nazarene under the Nazarene vow, so we're going to have to look at that. And then we see the appearance of the angel of the Lord in verse 3, so we have to look at the angel of the Lord. So there's a lot of important things to look at as general background that are important because they are background to lots of, lots of Scripture. So we look at this opening verse, and it's similar to what we've seen at the beginning of Jephthah. Uh, We saw it at the beginning of Gideon. We saw it with Deborah and Barak. We saw it going all the way back, except for the first one, Othniel, that the children of Israel, the Israelites, just continue to commit the same sins. They have this problem, and as I pointed out last time, by going to the end of this period in the... Um, late 7th century under Jeremiah that the Israelites continued, they had high points they had spiritual high points as you go through at the time of David, Solomon Hezekiah, others but they're on that same downward trajectory, and they are in love with prosperity theology in the uh, uh, agricultural time. That was the worship of the fertility gods of the Baals and the Asherah. And so finally God is just fed up with it because it's had reached its most extreme forms, and that is child sacrifice. And so God is now... Is, is then by by uh, 586 B.C. he will bring about the fifth cycle of discipline, and we went over in detail those five cycles or stages of discipline uh, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 last week, all in terms of background, saying that finally God just takes them takes them out of the land. So they did evil, not with reference to their own ideas, but with reference to God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. It is God's character that is the standard for determining evil. And one of the things you'll notice as you go through uh, much of the Old Testament is that evil is when It is stated in the text that they do evil in the sight of the Lord. What almost immediately follows is an explanation of their idolatry. That is the definition of Israel, and idolatry is religion. And so many people think it's just good to get people to go to church. It's a horrible thing to send people to a horrible church. There are many people who are going to churches that are not giving them any understanding of the gospel, or they're giving them a false gospel. And today I read, I, I get emails from different um, uh, discernment ministries, and these discernment ministries are exposing how many churches are having. Um, you know, having ver- various uh, cross dressers come into come into their church and give uh, readings um, readings to the um, children, and they're all dressed up transvestites and you know stuff like that, and they're uh, they're validating homosexual marriages i'm talking about southern baptist churches that were historically solid and now they've gone woke and it just goes on and on and on and so you get it's just so bizarre what is happening in in our country and they are doing evil in the sight of the lord they are uh, involved in various forms of whether it 's intellectual idolatry or whether it it, it 's not that they 're worshiping uh, in in m- most cases there 's not a physical object they 're worshiping but they're worshiping a false God that has taken control of their minds, and so that 's what what they have they're performing are the, they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And this has taken hold in some historically orthodox seminaries. And after George Floyd three years ago, it was just revolting to see how many people immediately jumped on the bandwagon and were making all kinds of apologies for whatever racist mistakes and sins were made by previous generations. And we've lost count of the fact that you, you no one can apologize for someone else. It's a violation of the first, first divine institution. You can't apologize for somebody else's sins or somebody else's lawlessness or criminality. People want to do that, but it's not your fault. You have nothing to say about somebody else's responsibility. And this uh, young man who had this, uh, you know... Uh, this, this organization that was making, you know, cyber cyber money, or I forget what they, what they called it, but he just, you know, was, uh, defrauded lots of people out of a lot of money. His parents are lawyers who graduated from Stanford Law School, and his mother wrote an article in a law journal some, four, some six or seven years ago where she said we need to absolutely do away with this whole concept of personal responsibility, That is destroying the judicial system. It is destroying what's happening in the courts. We need to absolutely do away with this whole concept of holding people accountable for uh, their errors. It's absurd what's going on. See, if people are basically good, then you can't hold them accountable. You have no frame of reference. You're but you're violating God's standards. And so we often look at what's going on today and we just think how horrible it is, but we're measuring it against where we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but we're not measuring it against where Israel was at the time of the judges or where Israel was under Ahaz or what Israel was under Ahab and Jezebel. And we've got a long way to go, people. Just just revamp your whole... Uh, scale of values there to recognize that we're a long way from being as apostate as israel was in many many uh, many times in the old testament now that's not to somehow validate what's going on today but but i often hear people say it's so bad the lord's got to be coming back soon and i beg to disagree it isn't bad as it was in the old testament yet We've got a long, long way to go. It's not as bad as it is in China. It's not as bad as it is in India. It's not as bad as it is in, in Saudi Arabia or in Yemen or in Russia. We've got a long way to go. The only thing that's going to get any of us through it is the Word of God. But Israel, and, and, and that's why I think this is a great encouragement because we're seeing how God is so gracious and merciful to Israel as they've gone through this, this whole period. For The period of the Judges goes from roughly about 1350. Okay, The Exodus is 1446, 40 years in the wilderness. The um, conquest is from 1406 to approximately 1400. And then you have the ge- that generation has to die off. So it really starts around 1350 and goes to the time that Saul becomes king around 1050. So that's 300 years. How long has this nation been around? About 400 years, right? And it's only really been in free fall for about the past 150 years. So we have a long way to go. Aren't you excited about that? But see, we as believers have a divine viewpoint on the reality of history and where things are going, so, so it, it, it bothers us. In some cases, it shocks us, but it shouldn't surprise us what's going on if you really understand uh, where, where we've been. So they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the result was that God gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years ago it was 1982 so that's how long 40 years is and and we're not in quite in this problem yet so um, time is is significant it's not real thrilling is it you've been into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years so who are these Philistines and I mean, when I say that, let me rephrase it. Who are these Philistines? Because you have another group of Philistines mentioned in Genesis. In Genesis 20, 21, uh, you have Abimelech, who is the king. Uh, he's really of a city-state, Ger- Gerar, at the time of Abraham. So we're going to need to look at that. But first, we need to get a little glimpse of the time frame we're talking about here. Okay. Jephthah is the judge we just finished talking about, and his dates are approximately 1150 to 1100 B.C. Remember, the conquest was 1406 to 1400. So this is what, 250 years to 300 years after the conquest. So a lot of time's gone by so far in this period. Samson is born about, uh, about what, 27 years after Jephthah, so they overlap. Jephthah is a young man. He probably hasn't even started his deliverance yet when Samson's born, but they're in different parts of Israel. Jephthah is on the other side of the Jordan, in the Transjordan, and Samson is down in the southwest portion of Israel. I'll have a map up in a little bit. In the southwest portion, down near the area that we refer to now as the Gaza Strip. And then Samuel will be born, 1115. So Samuel is actually born about eight years after Samson. So they most of their lives overlap, and you don't get that when you're looking at uh, the beginning of, of the book of Samuel. Now, in 1124 is when the Ammonite oppression begins. And so it it probably ends sometime toward the end of Jephthah's life, maybe around 11, 1106, and he lives another six years after that. And the Philistine oppression begins about the same time. That's referenced at the beginning of uh, of uh, Judges chapter 10 and 11. So they're happening at the same time. So Jephthah's dealing with the Ammonites in the Transjordan, and Samson's going to be uh, g- going to be causing trouble for the Philistines in the in the southwest. So that gives you some perspective. And then Saul is born around 1085, and he becomes king around 1050. So that sort of gives you a framework of of what's going on. Because when you just read through the through the through the narrative, one person after another, you don't necessarily get that understanding so who are these philistines so that's what we need to look at and so we need to go back and look at the fact that they are mentioned earlier in the scripture now what you'll often hear people say today is that the philistines were greeks they're part of the greek this migration of what's referred to as the sea peoples actually that name for sea peoples comes from a letter our document written by Ramesses the 3rd now he doesn't have the authority that scripture has but but that's later on so he's talking much later about these sea peoples so we have to stick with scripture because that's our authority so we look at ge- the first time the word Philistine is used and that's in Genesis chapter 10 verse 14. in one of those chapters that when a lot of people are reading their Bible, if they read their Bible, they skip over because, oh, that's just a lot of names and it's so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so. But there's just so much rich information in there. And so you have to come to understand who some of these people are, because this tells you how the people spread out after the flood, and how they spread out after the Tower of Babel, and who comes from which son of Noah, and that all ties us back to that that blessing and curse uh, that Noah gave after after he got drunk. So we're told in Genesis 10:14 uh, that the Philistines are the descendants of the Casluhim. From which came the Philistines? That's what the text says. Now, and the Caphterim, and they are then connected in later scripture to the Carithites. And then we have some scripture there: Ezekiel twenty-five fifteen to sixteen, Zephaniah two four and five, Jeremiah forty-seven four and Amos nine seven. We'll be looking at a couple of those scriptures. So, what we read in Genesis chapter ten is. Uh, the breakdown of the descendants of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. Ham is the line that we're looking at, and in 10.6, it says, the, the sons of Ham were Cush. This He's the progenitor of those who are in Libya. Mitzrayim, that is the Hebrew name for Egypt, put is, uh, well, Cush, I think, I got those backwards. Cush is probably Ethiopia, not sure. Put is Libya and Canaan. Now, remember, Canaan is the one who gets cursed. Okay, so these are all the descendants of Ham. And then you get, uh, it fills in some, uh, in between verse 6 and verse 13, you get the descendants of Cush. And then in verse 13, it starts with the descendants of Misraim, who is the uh, one who shapes Egypt. Misraim had four sons, Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, and the Naphtarim. And it go, the sentence goes on, the Pathrusim and the Casluhim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Now, that doesn't tell us a whole lot, but what this tells us is that the Philistines are descendants of Ham. Where'd the Greeks come from? Greeks came from Japheth. Whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? Is the Bible wrong? No. Uh, We've got to explain this, though. Now, later, in, among the so-called minor prophets, you have Amos. Amos 9, 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel? Says the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Caftor? So here's Amos. Amos writes about the same time as Isaiah. So we're talking around the period of around seven, seven fifty to seven hundred BC. This is this is a good three hundred years after uh, after Saul. This is four hundred years after Samson. So when it talks about here, um, it says that the Philistines came from Kaptur. So this is reiterating what is in Genesis 10. It's affirming that Genesis 10 is accurate, that the Philistines have their ultimate uh, ultimate root in the descendants of Ham. And then it mentions the Syrians from Kerr. Now, Jeremiah 47.4, Jeremiah wrote later than uh, Amos Amos is like late 8th century. Uh, Jeremiah is late 6th century, early 7th century, and he says because of the day that comes to plunder the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains, for the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. I can tell this is exciting everybody. But this is a this is kind of background. information. you go out there and you talk to somebody knowledgeable about the Bible, they're going to say, see, the Philistines, what archaeology tells us is the Philistines are Greeks and the Bible's wrong. And you're going to sit there and go, I have no answer. Right? Or your grandkids are going to be in some Western civ class and get slaughtered with information like this. Deuteronomy 2.23 Moses says the Avim who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza that's where the Philistines were along the the coast. The Kaftarim who came from Kaftor. So Deuteronomy affirms it. Jeremiah affirms it. Amos affirms it. Well let's just throw away the Bible. It's all wrong. Archaeologists are right aren't they? No. Never trust them. So Philistines were found, we t- were told, were in the land of Israel during the time of Abraham. So Abram comes, al- comes in to the land probably around 2100 sometime. I, uh, and uh, when we come to the Chafer Conference, you're going to need to listen to what what these men are teaching because it affects chronology, and chronology is where history happens. And we may have uh, some false numbers may have gotten into the Masoretic text for various reasons. This gets really complicated, but it's important to learn. So, it just, it's just going to change dates, some dates, some of the older dates a little bit. So Abraham, those around 2100 to 2000, some people say it's a little later, some people say it's a little earlier. We'll just work with that. So where did they come from? Well, here's a map that uh, shows the migration of the Sea Peoples. And the migration of the Sea Peoples is indicated by the purple lines. So over here, you have ancient Greece, you have the uh, Dorian Greeks and the uh, and around Athens, you have the Attic Greeks and you have the Spartans down here on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And you see that some of these come down and they're migrating down to Crete, Capftor, biblically. They're migrating down to Greek, to Crete. But there's some people who are there, the Kaftrim and the Philistines who came from Ham. Have gone there as well, and so when the Greek, uh, when these Greek sea people come in, they're going to mix, and so you're going to get a a blend of those who are descendants of Ham and those who are descendants of Japheth, blending together to form this group uh, of the sea peoples that are going to take on a lot of Greek history and Greek characteristics. Uh, so the Philistines then are going to come as part of the later, the sea peoples are really later than Abraham. So you probably had a group uh, where I would disagree with this chart is I would take these purple lines down here and those would be the Philistines that are coming from the area of Egypt. Over And here you have the Gaza Strip. You have Ashkelon and Gaza. And so they're coming in here. So you're getting a blend of different peoples, okay? And so some of them are still called Philistines. You're going to have people in Texas who some people will still identify them as Mexicans because their great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy came up from Mexico. But they're Texans because they've been in here long enough to wear... Uh, if they're not Texans, nobody is. Um, so they're still called uh, called Philistines, but there's just this melting pot that occurs in the in in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, that's going to blend a lot of these different people. Some are descendants of Japheth, and they're Greek. Some are descendants of Ham, and so this is what's going to help help explain this. But we have to remember that all of these groups are worshiping a various pantheons that are very similar. They just have different names, but they're all fundamentally denying the creator-creature distinction. They are involved in various forms of fertility worship, and so they bring that with them. And this is spiritually, you can say this is part of the angelic revolt, Seeking to bring demonism into the area where God, that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Deuteronomy thirty-two sixteen talks about Israel. The day refers to the Israelites. They made, or, excuse me, to the Canaanites. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him, that is God, to anger. They sacrificed to demons, who were not God. They call them God, little g, but they're demons. God is saying that what's behind every false religion is demonism. You have demons who are energizing the worship of the various idols, whether you're talking about Buddha or Hinduism or whether you're talking about Scientology. uh, Whatever it is you're talking about, if it's not biblical Christianity, then it's being influenced by demonism. So they're sacrificing to demons who are not gods, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So that's talking about the Israelites who aren't being fearful of these demonic, idolatrous gods. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols. This is several hundred years later. But the Lord made the heavens, so these these gods of the peoples, the Norse mythology coming back in movies to a theater near you as Thor, and the various other um, Zeus and all these others that are populating a lot of these films, those are all various demons. when I read earlier in judges i read um, I read portions of John Milton's Paradise Lost, where he is so biblically sound that he calls, he names the demons, the fallen angels in heaven, Zeus, Jupiter, and Thor, and all of these other names, because it all goes back to demonism. Now, the area that we're talking about where these sea peoples and the earlier Philistines came from is along the coast of Israel here. So this is a map of the promised land, and it's there to show the various uh, tribal areas and also where the the judges operated. And so you have uh, Samson operating in in this general area down here by Judah. So you can make out a few names here. This is Joppa. Joppa is the port where Peter is living in Acts chapter 10, and he's living at the home of Simon the Tanner. And if you go to Israel with me in June, we'll land in Tel Aviv about 10.30 in the morning, and then we're going to drive a little bit south into the city of Tel Aviv to Joppa, to the ancient Joppa port, and uh, we'll look around there uh, where Peter was, talk about that story, eat lunch, and then we'll, we'll head north from there. But that's Joppa. Jerusalem is located down here. And then further south, you have Ashdod. Ashdod is part of Israel today. It's not down in the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip's a little further south. Now, this map I have on the right is uh, uh, gives you a little better understanding of this area uh, that is. Here's Gaza, which is at, at the north end. The Gaza Strip is probably comes out like this and then goes south. Ashkelon, Ashdod, those are uh, Israeli. Over here you have Gath, Goliath's hometown. Uh, here you have Azekah, which is near where the battle with David and Goliath takes place in the Valley of Elah. Here, so you all, and Timnah. This is where um, Samson fi- finds a, a good-looking girl down there that gets him all excited. So that's that's Timnah. Ekron, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza are the five cities of the of the Philistines. So that's the, the the area that we're that we're going to be talking about. Okay. So my basic view is that um, the early the early Philistines, the ones during the time of of Abraham, that are mentioned in Genesis twenty and Genesis twenty twenty one. Are, are probably Philistines that were Hamitic that move up into this southeast area. Now, who's, who's dominating the area uh, of, the, of uh, the promised land there? Who's living there? What do we call them? Canaanites. Canaan is a descendant of who? Ham's grandson. Okay, so they, they, they fit right in in terms of their, their, their ethnicity but i don 't think those are the same groups that 's remember that 's around twenty one hundred to two thousand b c what are we what 's the time period we 're talking about we 're talking about eleven fifty so we 're talking about eight hundred and fifty years later well there 's been a lot of stuff going on in this area over the last seven or eight hundred years where there 's been this this blending so I believe that the group of Philistines that we see in Samson's time and with Shamgar earlier uh, back in chapter 3 are a much later group that is made up of of, um, a lot of different uh, uh, Greek people. But they've taken on their own uh, uh, culture. And one of the aspects that we see of their culture is that they tend to assimilate to the culture that they're moving into. And one of the reasons that, um, that we can say that is because when you look at the three major gods that are mentioned of the Philistines, Dagon, Asheroth, and Baalzebub, those are Semitic names. So they're just basically assimilating to the local religion, and they may give uh, some gods and goddesses a new name, but these names we know are, are idolatrous. So that, that what happens when you have assimilation, when you have syncretism, where you're blending uh, religions or belief systems so that there's something for everybody, everybody gets the same thing, is it, it breaks down absolutes. And I it, think it, it, you have to develop into, you develop into relativism because you want everybody to be comfortable and you don't want anybody to be offended. And one of the problems we have in our culture, of course, is if you say anything about an absolute, it offends somebody. But you never hear anybody say, well, I'm offended that all these minority groups are so offended. That offends me that they don't like Christianity, but, but that doesn't work. Because we're really the ultimate, and you don't understand why we're the ultimate enemy unless you understand the, the angelic revolt. So what we learn in all of this is that when you get into this point of plurality of deities, you end up with a plurality of, of values, and everything breaks down into uh, absolutes. So, so you don't have anything that's absolutely true. So if anything can be true, then nothing is true. If anybody's belief says, no matter how rationally contradictory it may be, if anybody's system is, is if everybody's system is true, then nobody's system is true. And nobody will fight for the truth. Because if you don't believe there are absolutes, there's nothing worth giving your life for. And so you're not going to fight for the truth. And if you're not going to fight for the truth, you're not going to live for your truth either. And that's exactly what we see going on in our world today. If you have nothing to live for, you have nothing to die for. And you won't die for freedom because you don't understand what freedom is. And what we speak of is freedom today. If you were to transport somebody from the late 1800s or late 1700s here, they would say we're not free. Read a quote from Benjamin Franklin today that if you owe money to somebody, then you're their slave. He got that actually originally from Proverbs. And if you owe money, and, and we owe how many billions of dollars to the Chinese? So we're their slaves, ultimately. It gets really bad. So, fortunately, as believers, we understand who we are and who God is and that God's in, in control. And the patterns that we're seeing today aren't new. They were patterns that, went, that you see cycling over and over again uh, in the ancient world. So what we see during the period of the Judges is Israel has totally succumbed to pure relativism, and now they just want to peacefully coexist with the Philistines. You've seen that bumper sticker, Coexist. Coexist. All that means is nothing's worth fighting for. We're all going to coexist. That isn't what they would say. They wouldn't agree with that analysis, but that's what it is. So the person who wants everybody to have equal, uh, equal, equally true, even though they're all logically contradictory, uh, can't live with somebody who's an absolutist. And Christians and the Bible are absolutist. There is only one God. God keeps saying again and again through the prophets, I alone am God. Jesus said, I'm the only way to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but my being. And to the relativist, that's the, the most bigoted, arrogant thing that anybody could say. And so we're headed culturally for an enormous clash, and we're already seeing that this these clashes have been going on for a 100 years or more ever since the rise of liberalism in the mid-19th century, but it's just going to get worse. And if you think that somehow by, by accommodating paganism that somehow we're going to be able to avert the clash, that never happens. Talk to, uh, talk to Prime Minister Chamberlain of Britain about that and what happened at, at Munich as he ga- gave up Czechoslovakia, basically, and thinking that we were going to have peace in his time. And a couple of years later world war ii had started so we can't we can't give up on our absolutes and we can't accommodate the relativist so this is what we see is happening in the culture that samuel samson's going to be born into pure relativism no absolutes so god has given them over the hand for 40 years in 40 years a culture can be completely subverted Whatever may have been there in terms of biblical absolutes uh, probably barely, was barely surviving. Now we're told in verse 2, Now there was a certain man from Zora of the family of Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. This is interesting. He's a Danite. Let's go back to our little map here just a minute. So if you look at this map, you see that Dan was originally given this territory along the Mediterranean Sea. Actually, it was a little further north. They have Dan down here, but it was a little further north, but they couldn't take their territory. This coastal plain along here is called the Shephala. And so they're down in the uh, south southeast of the Shephala. And we're going to find out later in, in a couple of chapters around chapter 18 or 19, how the Danites migrated all the way up here to Tel Dan, which is up just off the the map in the north. Uh, We'll go there on the Israel trip also. So here we have Dan down here, and they're down there because they couldn't defeat the Canaanites that were uh, in control of the Shephelah around Joppa and further north. So this is Manoah. He's from the tribe of Dan, and they're just not a very spiritually focused group. So he's a Danite. His wife is barren and doesn't have any children. Now, why does the text make an issue out of certain barren women? So we have to learn about what the Bible teaches about the barren woman. Actually, there aren't that many barren women in Scripture, but they're important to understand why that's made an issue of. There were more than just these six who were barren women. There were a lot of others, but God singles them out for certain uh, teaching principles. So first of all, I think we have to understand that children are a blessing and a godsend and that they are a sign of uh, prosperity. Psalm twenty one twenty seven three, four, and five reads Behold children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. The picture here of firing arrows is showing that through your children you can have a tremendous impact on a culture training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And uh, that doesn't mean that every child is going to have positive volition, but the overall biblical viewpoint is that children are a wonderful thing, and they're a sign of blessing from the Lord. So the first thing we ought to note about barrenness is the significance of barrenness is not that the woman who is barren, has sinned. Okay, Scripture makes it very clear that God's in control of that. The significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of this woman. There were certainly many other barren women in the Scriptures that are not mentioned, and we have to ask why these are mentioned. Fruitfulness is a divine mandate from Genesis 1 on. Now, some people take that to the extreme and think that you should not use any wisdom in determining how many children you have, and that should relate to your finances and age and energy and your capacity for children and exercising a little personal responsibility. Uh, But it's clear that a lack of fruitfulness in the scripture, a lack of children is a sign of spiritual barrenness. And as such, it is indicated in the stages of divine discipline. Genesis 122, God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, and saying that be fruitful and multiply, Uh, fill the waters and the seeds, and the birds multiply on the earth. And this is part of the responsibility created the male and female and told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. Genesis 9-1, God bless Noah and his sons, and what's the first thing he does? He repeats the initial creation covenant. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9-7, in the same covenant structure, he says, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. When you get to the end of the Mosaic covenant, which is what we looked at last time, and you have the blessing and cursing passages. In the blessing passages, in Leviticus 26.9, God says that if they're obedient, I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. Deuteronomy 28.4 repeats that same idea. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and in the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. So it's not just, just human uh, fecundity, it is animal as well. God is going to bless the flocks and the herds, and God's going to bless the women, and you're going to have plenty of children, and you're going to have uh, plenty of livestock. On the other hand, if you are disobedient to God, God says, "Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks." They're, they're not going to be having babies. Your sheep, your cattle, uh, are not going to have have, and your and your women, they're not going to have babies. Leviticus 26:22 says, "I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children." So God is making a point that that the blessing under the Mosaic law uh, brings about agricultural prosperity and familial prosperity, but disobedience brings judgment. Second thing we should note is that in specific cases, God intervened and closed the wombs of some women. He intentionally shut down the reproductive system for a purpose. And that's what we're looking at. Those are the women whose barrenness is emphasized in Scripture. Genesis 20, verse 18. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now, the scenario there is Abimelech is the Philistine king of Gerar, the city-state. And Abraham was afraid that, that because his wife was so good-looking that the Philistines would grab her and put her in one of the harems. And he sort of told a half-lie because she's his half-sister. And she, he lied about it and said, well, this is, this is my sister. And so she's taken then, taken into the harem of Abimelech. And so God is going to make sure that she is not... Uh, taken as anyone's wife because that's who the promised seed is going to come through. And so he closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. So you've got a real problem going on in the harem. Genesis 32, uh, Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. He was the one he wanted to marry initially, and his father-in-law Laban, Pulled a fast one on him and substituted her uh, sister Leah at the at the wedding. And so after the wedding, when the veils come off, all of a sudden Jacob realized he's got he got stuck with Leah instead of Rachel. But Rachel was the one he loved. And so as as he later worked, and now he has two wives, Leah and Rachel and he has their their, uh, handmaidens who become concubines. But Rachel is unable to have children. Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He's just really frustrated. How are we going to, what's going on? So third point is that Scripture makes an issue out of the infertility of six women. Sarah, the wife of Abram, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Isn't that interesting? The three patriarchs of Israel are married to three barren women. You think God's in control and has a point to make in all of this? And I've really never heard anybody else talk about this. He's making a point that life, he's the one who is the one who gives life. He gives life to Sarah's dead womb. He gives life to Rebecca's dead womb. He gives life to Rachel's dead womb. Listen, you Israelites, I am the source of life. That's what he is saying. And what does Jesus say when he comes along? At the beginning of John's gospel, he was the life and his life was the light of men. So God is, talking about, is making them understand that without him there's death, physical death, Reproductive death, spiritual death. Samson. We don't know Samson's mother. We don't know her name. Mentioned in Judges thirteen two. Hannah, the mother of Sam, Samuel in, in uh, 1 in First Samuel chapter one, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist in Luke one seven. So those are the the six six women. They're mentioned here. Uh, Genesis 11:30, but Sarai was barren; she had no child. Uh, Genesis 25:21, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord then answers that prayer and she conceives. Genesis 29:31, Rachel was barren. Genesis 30:23, uh, she conce- finally conceived, bore a son, and said, "God has taken away my reproach." Judges thirteen two. There's a certain man from Zor, That's a passage where now his wife was barren. In Luke one seven, Elizabeth uh, was 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 barren. Notice the King James misspells Elizabeth. It's a Hebrew name. It's an S, not a Z. I learned that from Randy Price because when he had his when they had their first child, they named her Elizabeth, and he made the point of spelling it with an S. So Randy will be here for the Chafer conference. Okay, so barrenness was considered a reproach. Genesis twenty, I mean thirty twenty three. Uh, Rachel conceived when she, and gave birth to a son and said, "God has taken away my reproach." And in Luke one twenty five in the New Testament, thus the Lord has dealt with me. That's Elizabeth in the days uh, when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people, and she's going to give birth to John the Baptist. Point five the absence of barren women in uh, Israelite culture indicated S- Israel's spirituality and divine blessing. The presence of barren women indicated just the opposite. Israel was in living in sin and they were rebelling against God and God was judging them. Genesis 35:11, 30, uh, God said to him, that is Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. It is the promise of fecundity. Exodus twenty three twenty six. there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. That's in the Mosaic law. That's what he's telling Moses. If you obey me, there's not going to be any barren women in the land. No miscarriages. Nobody's going to be not having children. Everybody's going to be blessed. I will fulfill the number of your days. In Leviticus 26, 3 through 4, God says, if, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. It goes on. The whole idea is productivity. Verse 9, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful. You're going to have babies. Deuteronomy 7:14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So what's the point God's making with these barren women? Point six, Thus the barren womb in these women pictures the emptiness and the lifelessness of Israel specifically and mankind in general. This will only be rectified in the future kingdom. Isaiah fifty four one, sing O barren, you who have not who who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. Okay, so there's going to be this. It's, the whole context is talking about what will be transformed in the coming kingdom. Seventh point in each case. God miraculously brings forth life where there is no life. That's the whole point. Only God can give life. Life comes from God, not just physical life, but spiritual life. God is the source who can change spiritually dead people and regenerate them and make them spiritually alive. God solves the problem of being, of our spiritual death and spiritual birth. So ultimately... All of the barren wombs are a type of the virgin womb of Mary. Isn't that nice? We get here just right before Christmas. It's all a picture. As God brings life into a dead womb, God is also going to bring new life into Mary's womb where she is a virgin. And this is what God is showing. He is the one who can, who creates life. He is the one who can give life, and he is the one who provides eternal life. So that takes us through uh, the second verse, and then in verse 3 we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. She is a picture of the spiritual barrenness of Israel at this time. And the promise of the Lord is you shall conceive and have a son. There's grace. And so next time we're going to have to come back and talk about the angel of the Lord and the significance of the angel of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that you are the God of life. You are the the God who brings life where there is death and that the entire human race is barren. The entire human race is born barren. They are born spiritually dead. And yet you and your grace are the one who provides life. You provided life through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And in his life, we see light. There's a ported connection there. So, Father, we pray that you would just encourage us with this, that even though we look around and our culture is barren, and there's so much rejection of Christianity. There are many places where there are still those who are responding to the gospel. There are many mature believers who are supporting missions and supporting Israel, and that they are having a tremendous impact through blessing by association. And we pray that there will be a change and that there will be a transformation, and many people will realize how truly barren and empty and hopeless and helpless they are, and that you are the only one who provides hope and help and salvation. And it's all through Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Father, we just pray that you will just make that clear. And if people do not respond, it's just a sign of the need for judgment. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.